Our scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed from the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. This summer we are studying the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. And so these last two Sundays, we've been in Genesis chapter 1 and then just the first few verses of chapter 2 in which we read of the week of creation. So we we read about the six days in which God created the heavens and the earth and then the seventh day upon which God rested. uh, So we, we studied this account of the creation. And then today you come to Genesis 2, verse 4, and it says, these are the generations. Or you could translate that this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And uh, then we have a description of creation again. And you kind of want to stop and say, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? What do you mean this is the account of the creation? Didn't we just have the account of the creation? Is this, what's the, what's the deal? Is this another creation? And the answer is no, this is not another. This is the same creator, same creation, same story of God's creative work, but this time the story is being told for us from a different perspective. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, the perspective is that of God in heaven speaking his creation into being. Now, in Genesis 2, the perspective is is God on earth with his hands in the mud, if you will. You know, planting a garden, forming a man. God up close, personal, involved in the creation of his world. So it's it's the same story, but it's told from two different perspectives. And the reason for this is because 
each telling of the creation story is emphasizing something different, something very important that we need to know about our God. So, for example, in, in the Genesis 1, the week of creation, I would say that the emphasis there is on God's power. God just speaks and things happen, right? He says, let there be light and there is light. Let there be land and there is land. So the emphasis there is power. In, in Genesis 2, the emphasis is not power. The emphasis is relationship. So he's, we, we learn with the second telling of the creation story that God is, he's not, he is not merely God the creator. He is God the relator. He's, he's a God who's involved in his world, a God who, who relates um, to us. So what I want to do is we look at, as we look at this passage, I just want to point out three things we learn here about the way God relates to us, how God relates to human beings. And, and the first I'd point out is this. God relates to us personally, personally. The God, the God of the Bible is not some kind of abstract force field, some energy that you figure out how to tap into. He's not a philosophy that you study. The God of the Bible has personhood. He is a, he's a person, three persons, but he's a personal God, meaning he knows you. And, isn't this crazy? You can know him. He relates to us personally. Now, one way you see this is in the way that God made Adam, the way he made the first human. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and it says, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, unless you know somebody really well, I would not suggest that you go up to them and breathe into their nostrils, all right? That's, uh, that's kind of an invasion of personal space, right? That's very, it's, it would almost require you to kiss them, right? And listen, this I think is using, it's using anthropomorphic language, metaphorical language, but that's, this is the image being per portrayed here. Uh, the way God created man, he almost kisses life into the man. In fact, one scholar said that the word breathe here, he says, is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss. So God doesn't hear. It's not, we're not just told that God speaks the man of before him. No, he, he molds him together, and then he basically kisses life right into him. Very personal, right? So we see God relating to us personally, first in the way that he makes the very first man. We also see it in the name that is used here for God. Now, you may not have noticed this, but up to, the, up to this point in, uh, in Genesis, um, Every time God is mentioned, we know him. He, he's mentioned basically by his title. So up to this point, every time God is mentioned, it's the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a, a generic title, which means God. All right? In today's passage, we know God not merely by his title, but by his name. So you see in verse 4, it says, the Lord God. And Lord, you notice, is all in caps which is the way that many translators will, will render the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yahweh God. Now, Yahweh is um, the personal name by which God revealed himself to the Hebrew people. Some of you are familiar with that um, passage in Exodus 3 where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says to him, what is your name? And God says, Exodus 3.15, Moses says, what is your name? He says, 
Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So um, in this telling of the creation story, the, the name, it's not just title for God, right? He's not merely described by his title, Elohim. We're given his name, his personal name. Now, what does that communicate to us? Let, let's imagine, okay, imagine you're in the subway, you're on the street in the city, and you have a little crisis. Maybe um, you get hurt, somebody steals your wallet, something like that, and you see a policeman. You approach this policeman to request some help. How do you approach the policeman? You use his or her title. You say, officer, officer, that's a title. Can I have some assistance? I lost my phone, something like that, right? You'd use a title. Now, let's imagine that same policeman moves in next door to you, and he invites you over for a barbecue. You walk into his backyard. He gives you a hamburger, he hands you a beer, and you say, thank you, officer. What will he say to you? He will say, please, don't call me officer. Call me Bill, right? He'll, he'll, he'll want you to use his name. Now, what will he be communicating by telling you not merely to use his title, but to know him by his name? Well, listen, he'll be telling you he wants to be your friend. Right? He doesn't merely want to play a role in your life. He wants a relationship with you. And guys, listen, it's the same with God. When in, in the history of our redemption, when God revealed himself to us by his name, what was he saying? Listen, he was saying, he, God, this is for you. God doesn't merely want to play a role in your life. He wants a relationship with you. You could say it this way. He wants you to know him. There's a question. Do you know God? Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian, and maybe you have friends that are Christians, and they're always inviting you to church or telling you about Jesus or, you know, trying to share the gospel with you, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't blame you if what, you're, what you think they are saying to you is they're kind of nagging you, be a good person like I am, be religious like I am. Listen, if they understand the gospel, that's not what they're saying. They're not nagging you to be a good person. They are inviting you to come to know a real person. To know the living God. Jesus said in, in John 17, verse 3, as he's praying to the Father, he said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus said, this is where life comes from, really in a relationship, knowing God. So, do you know him? He wants you to. He so we, God relates to us how? He relates to us first, personally. Secondly, you would say, God relates to us generously. Um, guys, the God of the Bible is not stingy. He is not a miserly God. He's not, he's not a God who's always trying to see what he can get from you and doesn't want to help you, just see what he can get out of you. That's, that's not the way... That's not the way he is, but sometimes that's hard for us to believe deep inside. Um, early, last spring, this spring, 
I, guess, I was at some kind of street festival. I don't really remember it, but they must have had one of these raffles where you fill out a form and you put your information in the bucket and, and you can win a prize, all right? So um, a few weeks ago, I got a call, a telephone call, telling me, Mr. Ellis, you uh, entered this contest and you have won a free vacation. You know what I did when I heard that? Immediately hung up my phone because I know how these things work. It's a trick. They're not giving me a free vacation. They, just want, they want them to sell me something. There's always a catch. You know, there's always a catch. They want something out of me. So I just hung up the phone. I didn't even listen. A couple days later, they called me up again. Mr. Ellis, you've won a free vacation. And like, hang up the phone. I don't believe you. It's a trick. You want something out of me. Nobody gives away free vacations. So for several weeks, like every other day, they kept calling, leaving voicemails. Mr. Ellis, you've won a free vacation. You've won a free vacation. And I, it's a trick. It's a trick. It's a trick. Finally, I said, all right. You, hey, you never know, right? So I called back. I called the number. And guess what? It was a trick. <laughs> they weren't giving it. They wanted something. They were trying to sell me something. And listen, isn't that the way it is in this work? It's always a trick. There's always a catch. They, nothing is free. They always want something from you. And listen, it is easy, so easy to start to assume it's the same way with God. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And that little voice says, it's a trick. He doesn't want to give me life. He wants to take life from me. John 15, verse 11, he said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And we say, oh, it's a trick. He doesn't want to give me joy. He wants to ruin my fun, right? Or Proverbs 16, verse 3, commit your way to the Lord, what, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. And something inside says, no, he won't establish my plans. He's going to mess up my life. Or Psalm 34, verse 8, taste, have you heard this verse? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And something inside says, no, he's not good. He's not going to keep me safe. He's not going to be there. So, um, let me just, can I just tell you something? This is from a guy with enough white hair to have tried this and found out the truth. It's not a trick. It's not a con. This is not a scam. Guys, God really is good. And some, there are some churches where somebody would have said amen to that, all right? So, you know, when they say, God really is good. Thank you. All right, wasn't that hard? We have a generous God. We don't have a stingy God. Psalm 31, verse 19 says, How abundant are the good things that you've stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all, yeah, on those who take refuge in you. So God relates to us generously, and here's where we see this in this passage. Um, we see it in the place that God prepared for these first humans to live. Where did God put Adam? In a desert? In the wilderness? In Bayonne, New Jersey? No. He put him in a garden, a beautiful garden, a garden in a place called 
Eden. And Eden in Hebrew means delight. He put him in a garden in the land of delight. And and listen to how this is described, starting at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed out of the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows around the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, it's kind of hard to know exactly what that's describing, right? And no one has ever been able to figure out exactly where that might have been. But one thing's clear when you read that. This is describing paradise. I mean, it's... God... God is just so generously giving to this this man whom he's created, giving him trees and fruit and gold and jewels and rivers flowing with water. I mean, that's the picture of God that we're given here, a God who is good and loving and gracious and giving and thoughtful and kind and generous. He relates to us generously. Now, what what I'm going to say may sound really weird to some of you, okay? But the devil doesn't want you to believe that. He wants you to be jaded and sarcastic and doubtful and cynical and always questioning. He doesn't want you just to... He he wants you viewing God as unfair and unjust. And and, and listen, why, why? Because he doesn't want you to trust the word of this good God who created us. But what you see, I mean, you can't, there's so many questions. You, you read these, these texts, you have so many questions were hard to answer, but one thing you see here, guys, God is good. Ever giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed, wellspring of the joy and li- of living, ocean depth of happy rest. This is the God who made us. This is the God who rules this world. So how does he relate? He relates to us personally. He relates to us generously. Then then one final thing we see here. God relates to us conditionally. Conditionally. The, the The man is told that he can live in paradise. He can enjoy God's God's blessing, apparently without end, forever and ever, on one condition. He must obey. He must obey God's word. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, verse 17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, Theologians and Bible scholars have noticed all the, all the basic elements of a biblical covenant in this passage. They just say, God here, it may not use the word, but he's making a covenant with Adam. In fact, some theologians would call this the covenant of works or the covenant of life. And what was implied in this covenant is if this man would just 
trust God and obey God, he would live. Apparently, he'd be able to continue to feast on the tree of life. What's stated clearly in the covenant is if the man didn't trust God, didn't obey God, he would die. And so that's, God comes in and says, here's the way I'm going to relate to you. These are the conditions. These are the, the terms of, of, of the covenant. Obey me and you live. Disobey me and you die. Those are the conditions. So God related to this first man conditionally. What you need to understand is that that has not changed. It hasn't changed. In, in order for us to know the love of God, his blessing, his favor, in order for, to enjoy a relationship with him and, and, and receive his goodness, God's law must be obeyed. And, and, if, and if we've sinned, like he said, if you eat the tree, you die. If we sinned, our sins must be punished. So our sins must be punished. God's law must be obeyed. God relates to us conditionally. The promise of his blessing is contingent upon perfect obedience to his word. Now, I know it's become very fashionable in our day to say God loves us unconditionally. You've probably said that. God's unconditional love. I've probably said that. Everybody says that. We like to talk about unconditional love. I don't think we should get all picky over people that say that. That's fine. We just mean that God is very loving. But technically, that's not true. There are conditions on God's love. Our, for, for us to receive his love, our, our sin must be punished. His law must be obeyed. So God's love is not conditional. But here's the good news. It's better than unconditional. It's better than unconditional love. What do I mean? Um, okay, I don't think I'm going to spoil the story. You probably already know that Adam blew it, right? Do you everybody know that? Adam messed up. God gave him this one rule. It's like you, know, you just have one job, right? And he messed up. He had one rule, and he didn't follow it. He, and and he, when, when Adam disobeyed God in that moment, the entire human race fell out of favor with the Creator. Adam was our dad, right? He was the father, so he represents the whole family. And the moment that he disobeyed God, we, all of us, became disqualified to inherit the blessings of God. Uh, so in Adam... We failed this covenant. We failed to live up to the terms. So, what did God do? For this race of people who failed to keep the covenant, who failed to fulfill the conditions. Well, God came and he kept the covenant for us. He fulfilled the conditions for us. Listen, in the person and the work of his son, Jesus. That's what, that's what I mean when I say it, God's love is better than unconditional. There are conditions, but it's better because God keeps the conditions for us. That's why um, there's a lot too much to explain here in, in, in depth. But in the New Testament, you will sometimes see Jesus described as the second Adam. And you say, what do you mean, the second Adam? Well, he's described that way because Jesus... Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus fulfilled the conditions of, of this garden covenant for anyone and everyone who will trust in him. Our sins need to be punished. God's law needs to be obeyed. Listen, Jesus died to, 
take the punishment of our sins. Our sins were punished on him. And, and he fulfilled, he, he kept the law perfectly. And God imputes that to us through faith. So, uh, like it says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So his, this conditional love of God. God says, for me to throw, pour my blessings and my love, my favor on you, my law must be obeyed, your sin must be punished, and we have blown it. And God says, okay, then in the person of my son, I will come into this world. I will keep the law for you. I, I will take the punishment you deserve. And so now, just as in Adam all are condemned, in Christ all are set free. So that's why often when we talk about Jesus, we don't talk about the covenant of works anymore. Jesus fulfilled that covenant. He kept, he kept all the terms of that contract. We talk about God now in Jesus relating to us in a covenant of grace. Of grace. So just to close, a uh, little review by way of application here. God relates to us personally. He wants you to know him. Do you know him? Unbeliever, you're invited into a relationship with him through Christ. And, and Christian, listen, how well do you know him? I mean, this is a relationship. Relationships, you gr they grow in depth. So I just would challenge you. Get to know God better. You say, how do you do that? Well, you let him speak to you. You read his word. You, you talk to him. Like any relationship, there has to be communication. He talks to you through the word. You talk to him in prayer. Do you set aside time for that? He wants you to know him. He, he relates to us uh, generously. Have you started to think that God is up to a trick, trying to take life away from you? That's a lie from the devil. He is a generous God. Believe it. And then finally, he, he relates to us conditionally. And listen, in order for him to love us, he requires perfect obedience to his law. Believer in Christ, lift your head. Rejoice. Jesus fulfilled the conditions for you. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And you are amazing. And we pray that we will come to know you and the fullness of your love through your son, Jesus. In his name, amen.